Belschel's family, those of you with us here in the room at our branding campus, and those of you connecting with us online, such a joy to gather together to celebrate the goodness and the greatness of our God. And today we're launching a new teaching series called Swimming Upstream, where over the next several weeks, we will talk about some of the most critical subjects that our society is grappling with. And I want to give you a little heads up about where we are headed. So especially if you are a parent of a smaller child, you can adjust or modify uh, accordingly. Next week, we're going to talk about the sanctity of human life and answer the question, when does life begin? And then two weeks from today, we will start kind of a three-week section of this teaching series that deals with sex, gender, and homosexuality. And during those three weeks, if you have children who are normally in the worship center with you uh, from kindergarten up to third grade, we're going to offer a special kids worship opportunity for you those three weeks that we will tackle sex, homosexuality, and gender. And so you can uh, check with our kids ministry team and we'll get you all situated. Uh, I do wanna encourage you, if you have older elementary students and certainly middle school, high school students, to have them with you in the room. I promise you, we will not discuss anything those three weeks that they're not already discussing. And so uh, I want to encourage you, if you have a fourth or fifth grader and up, to have them with you. But we understand that for some of you with uh, kindergartners on up through the third grade, you may want to have them in our kids worship those three weeks so they're not coming home and be asking some questions that you don't want to answer just yet. All right. And so that's two weeks from today. For, the, for three weeks following, so we'll, um, we'll, we'll keep giving you a heads up on that, but I want to give you an idea of where we're headed so you are fully prepared, all right? But today, we're going to start with really a foundational question and a foundational issue that will set the stage for everything else we talk about, and we're simply going to answer the question, can we trust the Bible? Because if you've noticed, in our culture, in our society, Truth in general is under attack and certainly a biblical worldview that begins with the belief that there is a God who created the universe and a God who communicated with the people that he created. That, that set of convictions is disregarded in most academic settings today. Most among the scientific community completely disregard the notion that we are here and we exist as a result of the power and the wisdom of a creator who then in turn communicates with those whom he made. It's actually almost frowned upon to have any set of convictions related to an intelligent designer. The fact that we are here because of the power, the creative power of God. Christopher Hitchens, a renowned atheist, said this, the creation story is ridiculous garbage and has given us a completely false picture of our origin as a species and the origins of the cosmos. But with all due respect to Christopher Hitchens, I, I want you to know today that these atheists and those among the scientific community who bend toward atheism offer no substantial alternative to our origins. <laughs> we live in a society that is dispelling truth and is dispelling the notion that we can have a creator who communicates with those whom he created, but also a scientific community that is offering no reasonable solutions of their own. Richard Dawkins said this, it's not necessarily possible to simulate again the chemical conditions of the origin of life. There are various theories for how it might have happened, including by the way, some theories that propose that we are the result of alien activity. And as I look around the room today, I think that is a plausible idea. <laughs> no, not really, but Richard Dawkins acknowledges there are various theories for how 
life originated, how the cosmos originated. He says, none of them is yet fully convincing. It may be that none of them ever will be because it may be that we shall never fully know what the conditions were. The renowned Stephen Hawking said this, when people ask me if a God created the universe, I tell them that the question itself makes no sense. Time didn't exist before the Big Bang, which of course is readily accepted as fact, even without any proof. As Richard Dawkins has already acknowledged, it's just a theory and one that cannot be fully proven or even remotely proven. But yet Stephen Hawking says there, there is no reason to ever ask if God created the universe because time did not exist before the Big Bang. And so there's no time for God to make the universe in. It's like asking directions to the edge of the earth. The earth is a sphere. It doesn't have an edge. So we're looking, so looking for it is a futile exercise. We are each free to believe what we want. And it's my view that the simplest explanation is there is no God. No one created our universe and no one directs our fate. This leads me to a profound realization. There is probably no heaven and no afterlife either, which in my view is an incredibly sad statement. In essence, he is saying there is no reason for living beyond just this life. That's it. So you see, there's, there, there are no reasonable theories put forward. The Big Bang, we're here, boom, because these molecules and particles exploded into existence. We don't know how. And out of that chaos over billions of years now, we have the type of complexity and balance in our world that exists today. And so of course, some scientists and atheists have proposed theories. Neil deGrasse Tyson, who you are probably familiar with has proposed one. Here is his theory on origins. He says, what we do know and what we can assert without further hesitation is that the universe had a beginning. Yes, I agree. And then he continued, he said this, the universe continues to evolve. And yes, every one of our body's atoms are traceable to the Big Bang and to the thermonuclear furnaces within high mass stars that exploded more than 5 billion years ago. We are, here's his theory of the origins of life now, we are stardust brought to life and then empowered by the universe to figure itself out. And we have only just begun. So we are stardust. We are here as a result of billions of years of evolution where you have the type of evolution that we would refer to as macro evolution where you have complexity out of chaos. You have order out of chaos. What Neil deGrasse Tyson is espousing is that there was a big bang, we have no proof of that, no evidence of that, but a big bang happened, stars exploded, stardust spread throughout the universe, which is expanding. And then over the course of billions of years, this stardust formulated the key components that we have now on earth, which of course is in perfect proximity and gravitational alignment with the sun so that we'd either freeze or burn. And then in this context, over the course of billions of more years, now life, even human life has formed. And we are, he says, without question, stardust. Now, my, my point is simply to suggest that whatever your theory of the origins, it is a theory that you embrace by faith. Christopher Hitchens may have espoused to be a profound atheist, but make no mistake about it, he is an atheist by faith. Richard Dawkins, Stephen Hawking, Neil deGrasse Tyson, all accept their views or their loosely held views of the origins by faith. I also have a view of the origins that I accept by faith. And when I look at the complexity and the order and the beauty of what we now know to be true about the cosmos, my faith leads me to the fact that we are here not by means of chance, not by means of 
order and complexity coming out of chaos. No, we are here by the hand of an intelligent designer, God, who is all powerful and is able to establish the order and the complexity that we have today. Now, let me, let me, yes. Now, let me, let me just reference, in case you're here today, you're tuning in online and you're, you're wondering, okay, why would I accept that theory of the origins as true? Well, let me just give you one example, and this isn't a message on origins today, but it's important to lay the foundation for how we arrive at truth. Listen, when you look at the complexity, for instance, it's just one example, I could give you many, but one example, the complexity of the human eye, it is a complexity that even the most atheistic scientists cannot explain. When you look at the complexity of the human eye, it confounds even the most intellectual scientists and researchers today. Even Darwin acknowledged the impossibility of natural selection moving towards the type of complexity found in the human eye. Let me give you an exact quote from Darwin. He said, the eye, that the eye could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest possible degree. But yet natural selection is the means by which we have arrived at the complexity of life and the order of the cosmos is widely embraced as fact today, not faith, fact, but I would beg to differ. Dr. Doug Borchman of the University of Louisville research team, a professor with a PhD in chemistry and a former atheist, said this about the eye. His entire job, by the way, is to research the human eye so we can better understand it and treat the abnormalities that we experience with it. Abnormalities that now have me reading like this. <laughs> Dr. Borchman is a genius who has spent his entire career studying the human eye Initially, as an atheist, here's what he says about the eye. Quote, the cornea, lens, retina, nerves, connections are ridiculously complex. There is so much to know. For an eye to be able to see, all of the basic components must be present at the same time and work together perfectly. For instance, if we look at just the lens, that's one of his areas of expertise, just the lens on the eye. He says, for the lens to be formed somehow... He says, for example, let's just take a fish. For the, for the lens to be formed somehow in that fish, by time and chance, the lens would have had to be perfectly formed and clear when it initially appeared in the eye. Otherwise, the lens would block vision and the survival of the animal would be seriously compromised. And so he concludes with this. To be clear, all of the following must occur for the eye to function normally. The lens must not have a blood supply or intracellular organelles, the macromolecular structure of the cells and molecular structure of the biomolecules must be ordered in a clear crystal. The intercellular space must be extremely small and the biomolecules on the lens must have the correct index of refraction. No series of mutations could cause any or all of these changes in a tissue simultaneously. I have no idea what I just read. but it sounds really complicated. Would you agree? Here's what he's saying. When you look at the complexity of the human eye, even just the lens along with everything else, the, the, the fact that one would suggest that over the course of millions or billions of years, we went from chaos to that level of complexity is ridiculous. This scientist and researcher is no longer an atheist, by the way, he's now a believer in Jesus. What's one of the reasons? Well, he married a believer. That always makes a difference. But he acknowledges it was the inability to make sense of the complexity that every single day of his life he beheld. And so he concluded with this statement in an interview I read recently. He said, science is not a stumbling block to belief in a creator. Rather, it tells us there must be something else. Now, here's my point. It takes a step of faith to be a Christian and to embrace the reality that we are here not as the result of chance or macroevolution, but because 
of the creative power of a God whose glory and majesty and order and complexity is seen in all things. It takes a step of faith to believe that, but it takes a leap of faith to be an atheist. Faith is required either way. And the fact that in our universities and our public school systems and just in our culture in general, the big bang theory and the, the theories of origins that are just theories and we get into aliens and start it. The fact that all this stuff is out there and it's widely just accepted as fact with no one pushing back, it seems, is, is, is a great injustice, not only to our educational system, but to the hearts and minds of our young people. I want you to understand, it takes a step of faith to be a Christ follower, to embrace the reality that we are here in order and complexity as a result of the creative power of God. It takes a step of faith, of course, to get there, but it's a leap of faith to believe that we are here as a result of some other means. And my point to you this morning is that the God who created the world and created mankind is a God who therefore can easily communicate with those whom he created. Creation is the hard part. Communication in the eyes of our God is the easy part. And I want you to understand as we approach the Bible today, we approach it from the standpoint of our God, not only creating, but then communicating with the people whom he created. It is no problem for him to do so at all. And so we may ask then, okay, why a written record? Why has God then given us a written record? Well, not to oversimplify, but but it's the same reason that you ask for a written contract whenever you purchase something of significance, right? Say, so let me see that in writing. <laughs> and when something is written down and it's recorded, it eliminates any future distortion in dissemination. And that is precisely one of the reasons God has moved human authors to record his word and his truth. The written word of God prevents distortions in dissemination, right? I heard about a PhD student who was really frustrated with his professors about having to document accurately and heavily all that he was reading and citing in his dissertation. Like many students, he, he preferred to record uh, in his own words what he had read and document things that he had come across and make statements that were not heavily undergirded in the footnotes. And, and, and that's not permissible in a professional paper like a PhD dissertation. And so he was constantly pushing back, pushing back, pushing back. And finally, his lead professor said, I'll tell you what, I'll let you move through these general citations of your dissertation, do it how you wanna do it, and we will read it and we'll go on from there. And so that's exactly what he did. The, the student was so frustrated completed his dissertation, sent it in to his professors. Not long after, his, his lead professor contacted him and said, I have good news for you. We are passing you and we are accepting your dissertation and we will grant you at graduation your PhD. But we're not gonna give you a diploma. You'll just have to take our word for it. <laughs> well, those of us who have been through that rigorous process want the peace of paper. <laughs> you want the documentation, right? You, 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 you want the proof or the evidence. And, and as we come to the Bible, I want you to understand God, the God who created the world with order and complexity is the same God who then communicates with the people that he's made. And he's communicated in such a way that he moved these authors to record his word so that there is no distortion in dissemination. And what I want to show you today is that we have a, 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 a completed word from God over the course of many, many years that is incredibly accurate and has been recorded through the generations with such accuracy that there are very few distortions in the copies of the manuscripts that we have. And those that we do see are so minor that they only relate to punctuation or small variances. 
The God who created the world has communicated with the world and he has communicated with the world in such a way that he has preserved his word so that what we have today in both the Old and the New Testaments are incredibly reliable and trustworthy. Now, let me, let me, let me seek to prove this to you as we move through today, all right? Let me, let me just give you this foundational statement. I'm gonna encourage you to take a few things down today. I'm gonna move pretty quickly. I'm already moving quickly, but um, let me encourage you to take a few things down. Here, here's my key thesis today, all right? The Bible is the true and trustworthy word of God that was recorded without any error in the original manuscripts. I wanna propose to you today that as we prepare to talk about human life, sex, same-sex attraction, gender identity, a future that is for all in terms of eternity. Everyone will live forever somewhere. Listen, as we prepare to talk about these sensitive subjects, I want you to understand we have a word that God has given to us that is true, trustworthy, inspired, free of error, and 100% reliable to stake our lives upon. In other words, I'm not gonna be here giving you my opinion. No, you deserve better. I'm not gonna be here giving you the church's opinion. You deserve better. No, over the next several weeks, we're gonna talk about the word of God, the will of God and his design for you, your life, your family. Because the word of God is true, it is trustworthy and it was without error in the original Manuscripts. Let me give you a key takeaway here, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All right, let me give you a word here about the word. Okay, this is uh, the Apostle Paul writing. He says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, that we may be complete and equipped for every good work. Now that one word that, that is translated for us, breathed out, Paul says all scripture is breathed out. That comes from two Greek words. The New Testament is written in the Greek language, Koine Greek, a common Greek that would have been widely read and understood. And that, that Greek word from which much of our English language is based, by the way, that, that word is two words. It's the word for theos, which is God, and pneuma, which is spirit or air or breath. And here's Here's the word, put those two words together. And you have, this is what Paul says, a Bible, that a word from God, that, that is God breathed. You'll recognize that, that word for God, theology comes from theos. You'll, you'll recognize the, the pneuma there as a, a pneumatic tool, is a tool that is relying on air. Pneumonia is, is an illness that relates to the air pockets in the lungs, okay? You put those two words together, God and air, and, and here's what Paul is saying, that, 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 that the word of God is literally something breathed out by God. He moved human authors to write his very word. The analogy is simple to understand. You realize, you may not realize this, that when you're talking, you're breathing. When you're talking, you're breathing out. That's why sometimes when you're talking and you get going, you, you have to pause to take a breath. Some of you don't take enough breaths. <laughs> okay, don't, no, don't point to your spouse. No, 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 this, is, this isn't a sermon on marriage, okay? You're breathing, literally, I'm breathing. Today, I am giving you the word of Corey, <laughs> right? As you talk, you breathe. And, and, and here, here's what Paul is saying. As we come to what we know as the Bible, it literally is the word breathed out by God. It's God moving through human authors. Again, the God who created the world and the God who created us and the God who can move through those he created to record what he once recorded. God moving, not in violation of our will, but in conjunction with it, God moving for us to record, the biblical authors to record his very word. And we have it for us in what we know in two sections, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's break it down quickly. First of all, the Old Testament. The Old Testament contains 39 books that have always been recognized as inspired literature. Widespread agreement in Jewish culture about 
what books belong to the canon. The word canon is a word that means a, a, a measuring rod, a system of measurement. In other words, we've always had agreement about the Old Testament books, that which comprises the standard of scripture, right? 39 books. I have here a copy of one of my Hebrew Bibles. It can be too hard for you to see, but the Hebrew Bible originally was not divided how we divide the Old Testament. It actually is divided, it reads from right to left in the law, the prophets and the writings, the Torah, the Navi'im and the Katavim, okay? There'll be a pop quiz when you get home, you have to recite that, all right? But when you open up the Hebrew Bible, you, you find not the order that we have today, you find first of all the law, the Torah, and then you get to the prophets and then in the latter half of it, you get the writings. That's how the, 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 the Old Testament was organized for many, many, many years. The modern organization of the Old Testament that we have today is actually derived from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And our Bibles follow largely the Septuagint in terms of how the books are ordered and structured. But here's what I want you to know about the Old Testament. By the time you get to the New Testament era, by the time you get to the year zero and beyond in the first century, okay, you have widespread agreement and consensus about what made up the Old Testament, the word of God. And at that point, remember, the Old Testament was their Bible. There was no New Testament, of course. And so the Old Testament scriptures are widely braced and held to be true. Let me give you a few examples. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. This is Paul writing to Timothy. He says, but for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it and how from childhood, watch this, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Paul saying, some translations say scriptures there. Paul saying, from, from, from your earliest of years, Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, the Old Testament, the scriptures. Luke 24, 27, and beginning with Moses, notice what Luke says here, follower of Jesus, uh, a companion, the, the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. In other words, Jesus used the Old Testament, the scriptures. Acts 17, two, and Paul went in as was his custom. And he went in on the Sabbath day. This is talking about going into a Jewish synagogue and he reasoned with them from what? The scriptures. That's the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. Romans 15, four, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. I just want you to see that throughout the New Testament era, there was already consensus about what was in the Old Testament. In other words, what were the scriptures? The law, the prophets, and the writings. Even Jesus assumes the division of the Old Testament that we have today. Let me show you Luke 24, 44. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me, watch this, in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms or the writings must be fulfilled. Notice how Jesus acknowledges what you and I know as the Old Testament, the law, the prophets and the writings. It may interest you to know that Jesus quoted from three quarters of the books of the Old Testament and referred to them as we've seen here as the scriptures. Also, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament as divinely authoritative, check this out, nearly 300 times, but not one single time do the New Testament authors quote from the Apocrypha or any other writings as having the same authority. But they see the Old Testament, the New Testament writers do as authoritative and inspired. And then when you look deeper into the Old Testament, what you find is a work of incredible precision and preservation. Let me illustrate it in this way. For years, we were dependent upon just our earliest manuscripts that, that would date back actually to about 900 AD. And, um, and, and then just the, the the way the books were compiled and the scriptures that, that have been passed down for years and years and years. But then you've heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. When the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, it was a groundbreaking discovery. Let me tell you why. The Dead Sea Scrolls were copies of the, and are copies of the Old Testament that date back before the time of Christ. 
And when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, here's what we found. That when you lined up the Dead Sea Scrolls, manuscripts from before the time of Christ to the other early manuscripts we had that date to about 900 AD. So we're talking about a thousand years apart. Are you with me? When we found the Dead Sea Scrolls, we're talking about a span of about a thousand years and 95% of those manuscripts were identical. The other 5% only being minor variations. Now that is astounding that you would have a thousand years of copies where scribes are meticulously copying the word of God, the scriptures of the Old Testament to the extent that when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, a thousand years span and those copies, 95% identical. I have a picture here of the Dead Sea Scrolls. I'm assuming some of you don't go around uh, thinking about those or <laughs> have pictures of those stored on your phone, but there's a, there, there's a picture of some of the Dead Sea Scrolls that reads from right to left, by the way, in the Hebrew. And, and, and in other words, when, you, when, when we were able to take the Dead Sea Scrolls and match them up with the manuscripts that we had from a thousand years later and beyond, again, almost 100% the same. And so the God who inspired his word is also a God, I believe, who has preserved his word. And we see that incredibly with the Old Testament. Let's talk about the New Testament, all right? New Testament. The New Testament canon or the books of the New Testament, simply put, are built on the foundation of the apostles who had a unique authority and responsibility. Sorry, how do we trust the New Testament? Because every single New Testament author in some form or fashion was directly connected to Jesus. And therefore the apostolic authority forms the foundation for what we hold in our hands when we open the New Testament. Ephesians 2, 19 and 20 says this, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. What was the household of God built upon? What is the church built upon? Check it out. The foundation of the apostles and prophets. And then the chief cornerstone being Jesus Christ himself. 1 Corinthians 14 says this, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things that I am writing to you, that they are a command of the Lord. This is Paul saying, yes, there are other spiritual leaders out there. There are other religious fanatics out there. Some of them are claiming to have a, an authoritative word. Some of them are writing and recording things that, that they're trying to put on the same shelf as, as the apostolic witness. Paul says, I'm telling you, these guys are not to be trusted. He, he said, what I'm giving to you, I'm giving you from a direct word of the Lord. Peter, for instance, when he looked at Paul's writings, even in the day in which they lived, regarded them as authoritative and on the same level as the Old Testament scriptures. Second Peter three, look at this. He says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in terms of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, this is key now, as they do the other scriptures. Notice Peter sees Paul's writing as scripture, as authoritative. And he's saying there have always been false teachers. They exist today and they are distorting Paul's word in the same way they're distorting the scriptures. They're the same. Second Peter 1 21, I love this. Peter says this, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Paul himself understood that as an apostle, he was speaking as, as he wrote the word of God, often dictating to an amanuensis or a, one who would record his words. He says this in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says, and we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So I want you to see, we arrive at the New Testament through the witness of the apostles who had a unique responsibility and a unique authority. And so over the course of the first couple of centuries, how, or uh, millennia, how, how did the centuries, uh, <laughs> get that right. So uh, over the course of the first couple hundred years, how, how did the church then decide on what they would place in what you and I know as the Old Testament. Well, simply put, the books had to be written by an apostle or in the company of an apostle, apostle, presumably with his help and endorsement. 
You run through the list of New Testament authors. Matthew was an apostle. Mark, Peter's interpreter and assistant. Luke, a close companion and partner of Paul. John, an apostle. Paul, who wrote 13 letters that contain the New Testament, an apostle. Hebrews, which I do not believe, by the way, was written by Paul. That's another topic for another day. Is a close associate, the author is, of Paul and Timothy based on Hebrew 13. James was Jesus' brother and is called an apostle in Galatians 1. Peter's epistles, he's an apostle. John's epistles, an apostle. Jude, the brother of Jesus, and the book of Revelation comes from John the Apostle. You see here what we have in the New Testament authoritative as it's tied to the work of the apostles. There are 27 books of the New Testament, and the earliest collection of these books together was affirmed at the Synod of Hippo in 393 A.D. And um, the scholar F.F. Bruce said this, when at last a church council, the Synod of Hippo in 393, listed the 27 books of the New Testament, it did not confer on them an authority which they did not already possess, but simply recorded their previously established canonicity. And so, and so here's what I'm saying to you. Over the course of several thousand years, the God who created the world communicated with those whom he made and he preserved his word meticulously so that what we hold in our hands today is the reliable, inspired, authoritative, profitable word of God. It's incredible. It's, it's absolutely incredible. And so then, can we trust it? <laughs> I think I've already answered that question, so... <laughs> Let me go to why quickly. Let me, give you, let me give you what I call three essential truths then about the Bible and why you can trust it. All right, first of all, the Bible's history is tied to verified events, eyewitness authors, and meticulous copiers. In other words, if you compare the Bible to other religious documents, you will see a profound difference. No, no Christ follower is claiming that the Bible is uh, a document as a result of someone going into the woods for a week and getting a vision from some angels and coming back. Or the Bible isn't the work of just one author or one person. It's not just the record, the, record, the, the recorded teachings of one person. No, the, the Bible spans many, many years with many, many, many authors. And, and as you look at the Bible, what you find is history tied to verified events, eyewitness authors, and meticulous copiers. Listen, the, God preserved the manuscripts of the New Testament through love and care, the love and care of countless monks and scholars of the first 1,500 years of the church. Let me give you an example. The oldest manuscript that we have of a New Testament uh, literature comes from 130 AD and contains a section of the Gospel of John. Two of the earliest full manuscripts we have of the New Testament goes all the way back to 350 AD. Now, why is that a big deal? Because in secular literature, listen to me, Homer's Iliad has more manuscripts than any other ancient work outside of the Bible. Okay, so in secular literature, Homer's Iliad has the most manuscripts of, of any other. 1,757 ancient copies of the Iliad. Now, let me ask you this. Do secular historians regard as accurate Homer's Iliad? Yes, they do. Why? They say we have over 1,700 copies of it. Okay. The New Testament has over 5,000 copies. Moreover, the copies of the New Testament are much closer to the originals than the copies of Homer's Iliad. The earliest copy that exists of Homer's work is from 400 years after he wrote it, but the earliest widely accepted New Testament fragment we have from the Gospel of John dates to within 50 years of its writing. What I'm trying to say to you is that God has preserved his word in a way that is profound and exceptional. And God has preserved it over the course of many, many, many years. So let me give you a, a breakdown here about this history of the Bible and how we came to it. Just a brief summary of how we can trust it in light of these verified events, eyewitness authors and meticulous copiers. First of all, historicity. The Bible is good history. It's not just a mythical spiritual document. It is a historical document. 
And it's very, very good history that over the course of the last couple thousand years, someone could have disproved if the Bible were not fully accurate. But the Bible is good history. The test of any good history is are there eyewitness accounts? And this is the primary focus of the Bible. Secondly, archaeology. The Bible has reliable archaeology. Cities, nations, people groups. Let me give you an example. The Hittites were an empire that many secular scholars denied for many years. People used the mention of the Hittite people in the Bible as a reason to denounce the fact that the Bible is true. But guess what happened? In the early 1900s, a professor named Hugo Winkler discovered 10,000 clay tablets in the capital city of the Hittite people, and now everyone accepts that the Hittite people lived. Well, they could have accepted it before then if they just listened to the Bible. The archaeology is sound. The history is sound. Third, consistency. Now, this this is incredible to me. Check this out. The Bible was written over a span of nearly 1,600 years with 40 different authors, eyewitnesses. 1,600 years, 40 authors, not one contradiction. Now, I have to tell you, if I were to record the events of my life over the course of 40 years, one author, a short period of time, I would probably contradict myself at some point. (laughs) The fact that you have 40 authors over 1600 years, unifying themes, no inconsistencies, no contradictions. This is what we call internal evidence. Listen, we, we are here. The Bible still is the number one best-selling book of all time. Why? Because for years, people have tried to disprove it and they can't because of its consistencies. It's incredible. And then finally, accuracy, what we call external evidence. Look at external evidence. For instance, prophecies, 300 about Jesus alone, by the way, with great specificity. The city in which Jesus will be born, which is different than the city where he will be raised. Incredible accuracy and specificity, okay? This isn't me saying, you know what? I think the Bucks are gonna go back-to-back Super Bowl wins here. I think that's gonna happen, you know? I'm taking a shot in the door. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about hundreds of years before Jesus was born, who's been, his, his, his life verified by even secular historians, right? Hundreds of years, we are told, we have written documentation of where he would be born, which is different than where he'd be lived. And where he was born was in the middle of nowhere. But yet it was foretold, it was accurate. And you have, you have prophecies fulfilled specifically. You see here references even throughout secular history. You, you see references to, to how things have unfolded. Incredible. Daniel, for instance, had a prophecy about four kingdoms rising up before the kingdom of God comes. In other words, before the birth of the Jewish Messiah. Guess what? Four kingdoms rose up just as Daniel said they would. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And it was Rome leading the charge at the time of Jesus's birth and earthly ministry. Daniel prophesied that hundreds of years before. Listen, if just one of these prophecies were wrong, the entire Bible would go down with it. It's not happened. And so let me say it again. Why do we accept the Bible as true? Well, because it's tied to verified events, eyewitness, authors and testimonies, and meticulous copiers. It is a book of historicity, archaeology, consistency, and accuracy. No question. Now, let me move a little closer to home. Secondly, make a note of this. The Bible's primary purpose is not to be read and understood, but embraced and applied. This is where the rubber meets the road. Try to lay out a compelling case as to why I believe the Bible is true, how we can know for sure that it's true, that it's legitimate. But at the end of the day, let me say this to you very, very clearly. If you stand with me and you say, I absolutely believe the Bible is the word of God, you say, absolutely, I believe that it's true and reliable, historic, but you don't apply it to your life. You're no different than an atheist that rejects it. Let me ask you a question. Can an unbelieving person 
read and understand the Bible? The answer is absolutely. It can be read and understood by anyone. In fact, I've read secular authors and scholars who have had more accurate interpretations of certain passages than some believers I've read over the years. You don't have to be a Christian to read and understand the Bible, but you do have to be a Christian to receive it into your heart and your life and to do what it says to do. And here's my fear for for our current society and generation. My fear is that we have a bunch of people who know what the Bible says, but refuse to embrace how it says to live. I'm telling you, we got a younger generation right now who say, hey, yeah, I've, I've heard all my life, I've heard what the Bible says about sex, but I mean, come on. Well, a lot of people right now, we have a lot of churches right now saying, yeah, now I've heard what the Bible says about gender, but you know what? I mean, what's wrong with two people loving each other? What's wrong with a person unlocking who they feel like they really are? Who are we to jump in and say what they should or should not do? And as I think I'll help us to understand over the next several weeks, no, we, we are not in a position to tell anyone how to live or how to think, but the God who created us is. The God who created us is. And that's why I'm not peddling my opinion. I'm not, frankly, I'm not even interested in my opinion. <laughs> like, it's just my opinion. It's, I mean, it's just, it's no different than your opinion. We don't gather together every single week, every single year, give, pray, serve, seek to make an impact on our world because we all have the same opinion on everything. The church has always been mobilized and motivated by a purpose far beyond human opinion. It is the word and the will of God that has always grounded our movement and our work. Listen to what Paul said again. Every single word of the scriptures are breathed out by God. And then what did he say? He said they are profitable, profitable. Is it countercultural to say some of the things that I'm gonna say in the next few weeks? You better believe it. But I will say them because the word of God and the will of God is best. It's profitable, right? It's profitable. It's profitable. We need God's word in our lives so that we can thrive when it comes to how we live. God's not trying to withhold pleasure from you. He's not trying to withhold good from you. He's not trying to withhold blessings from you. No, he's given us his word and his will. He's preserved it over the course of thousands of years with consistency and accuracy and historicity so that you and I will know when we are led away by the flesh, when we are led away by our emotions, when we are led away by our feelings, desiring unity and not not conflict, when we are led away to compromise, then God's given us his word to anchor us, to remind us, no, there is a right and a wrong. There is a good and a bad. There is a way that leads to death and there is a way that leads to life. And so if you're here today and you say, no, I believe the Bible, no, that makes sense that I would take a step of faith to embrace the word of God, but you're not putting it in your heart and you're not living it out in your life. You are no different than an unbeliever. The end result is still the same. This is why James tells us, don't just be a hearer, be a what? A doer. The ultimate issue, therefore, as we approach the Bible today is not historical, it is personal. This is what makes the Bible different from every other book. I read a lot of books. They're informative, they're inspiring, they're, they're, they're interesting. I read all kinds of different books and all types of different literature and biographies and history and all the, and, and I get a lot out of a lot of it. But you know what? Only the Bible can cut right through to your heart. The Bible is not given primarily to inform your head. It's given to change your heart. And my fear is, listen to me. I'm asking you to contemplate this. I'm asking you to think about this. Before we get into all these topics, I'm asking you simply, what is your foundation for authority? What are you staking your life to? What are you believing to be true? Because increasingly in our culture, adhering to the will of God 
is going against the grain, swimming upstream, and the cause for a lot of awkward conversations and frankly, potentially the cause for some persecution. But if it's true, and it is, then it's profitable. And God's given it to you primarily, not just to inform your head, but to change your heart. And so let me just make this statement and one more takeaway and we're done. Listen, put the Bible in your heart and it will change your life. Put it in your heart, it'll change your life. Because, here's the last thing I wanna say today related to the Bible, because the Bible's primary focus is not a principle, but a person. And his name is Jesus. Do you realize that all of the Bible is ultimately about God's plan of salvation in Jesus Christ? From Genesis 3 onward, okay, Genesis being the very first book of the Bible, recording for us the very first interactions with the very first human beings. From Genesis 3 moving forward, you know what the Bible is seeking to address? How fallen, sinful, selfish human beings can have a relationship with him through the Messiah that God promised to bring through the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And the law of Moses is designed to show us, guess what? No matter how, no matter how many times God gives us his word, and no matter how many times God forgives his people, they still mess up and go their own way. And the prophets remind us there is a better day coming. There's a better redeemer coming. There is a Messiah coming. And the writings, they call us to obey. They call us to God. And then guess what? A man by the name of Jesus was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth. And he died on a Roman cross and he, and he rose from the dead and he fulfilled what God said would happen many, many years before. And he made a way of salvation available for every single one of us today. He is the ultimate word made flesh. And when Jesus was on earth, he gave us this one statement. I love this. Here's what he said in John 5. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Let me just pause it. He's saying, you search, you search the scriptures. Well, it was the Old Testament. You search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life. You know, if you're just a legalist and you just do, 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 do. Put in your head, you memorize, you memorize, but yet you're not changed by it. You search the scriptures because you think in them is eternal life. No, 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 no. They bear witness about me. This is not a textbook. This is not a tour guide. This is a living, breathing, active word designed to show us the foolishness of our sin and selfishness and the beauty of our savior. Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think in those words on those pages are eternal life. And I mean to tell you, those words on those pages only have life as they point to me. They're about me my work, my love, my grace, my forgiveness. And so if you get the word, but you don't get the word, then you miss the point entirely. 